Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in again. This is part two of my conversation with Sean Panting. So if you're just starting here, go back an episode, listen to part one. We pick up right where we left off. Uh, We start to talk about acting this week, Sean's role on Republic of Doyle. Uh, his experience acting. We get into some great conversations. There's some pretty amazing tour stories in here, some pretty amazing industry, uh, early 2000s, late 90s music industry stories in here. Uh, lots of lots of funny stuff um, and heartbreaking stuff and, and entertaining stuff. Uh, so I hope you enjoy that. Currently, it is June 6th when I'm recording this intro. So uh, just a couple of weeks ago, to, to you if you're tuning in on time for this release, uh, we did a couple of fundraisers this week for the Janeway Telethon and for the Learning Disabilities Association. Blind Date with a Star. Uh, we were the stars, Nancy and I. It was fun. It was the second year doing it. Some really nice people, some good food, good cause, all good. By now, uh, our summer tour dates will be up, so if you'd like to check that out, ianfoster.ca, you can see where we're playing all Newfoundland all the time this summer. A couple of festivals, we're playing The Gathering in Burlington, Sean Majumder's Festival, which we're excited about, the Cultural Craft Festival uh, out in Port Union, and a bunch of shows in that area as well, Bonavista Bay area. All the dates are up there, check them out. Also, please do us a favor, buy tickets in advance. All these shows, I think all of them, maybe one or two don't, but I think almost all of them have advanced tickets available. I know you like to buy at the door, so do I, you know, Um, but uh, it just helps us get excited about knowing you're coming if you buy in advance. So all the ticket info per show is up there, and we hope to see you this summer. Let's get right to it with my conversation with Sean Panting, uh, part two, right now. Talk to me about acting a little bit, uh, and as you mentioned, you were you were. Uh, would you say it's your biggest role to date, like in yeah, Republic so. of Doyle? Yeah, yeah I'd yeah. say. How was that? How was that experience of working on that show? It was pretty fun. It was really, again, it's really eye opening. I like saying yes to, um, I like saying yes to things. Now, I I started being a musician and an actor at roughly the same time. Okay. Um, and I had the benefit as an actor to have uh, Lois Brown as a teacher. Uh, Mandy Joseph too was was my theater teacher, but but having Lois there was great. And so I had a drama club that was um, you know, Lois Brown, who's like <laughs> who's like a nationally renowned director, uh, running my high school drama club, which had uh Andrew Young husband. Now it's like, you know, seventy five T V shows or whatever the hell he has now. Sure. So Andrew uh, Christine Taylor, who's a, you know, who's a actor and performance artist, Rick Mercer, who ended up being all famous, um, and a whole raft of these really interesting, uh, Helen Gregory, whose artwork hung in the National Gallery, like, it, it was insane, truly insane, that group of people, and, um, 
And so I had the benefit of that. And Lois's, uh, Lois's influence was huge because she always told us, well, there's no difference between professional and not professional here. Hmm. So instead of we're going to do a theater show in the gym for the school, she said, okay, well, let's go. We're going to go down to the hall. We're going to book you. Uh, we're going to book you a couple of nights at the hall. Here's how, here's how ticketing works. Here's Boo knows worthy. She works here. Uh, if you ever need to uh, discuss dates and stuff, you, the, she's the person you talk to, you know, uh, here's how much it costs. Here's what it is. And, and she just made us do it. And she made us, uh, she made me write songs. She said, you write songs, right? I said, yeah. She goes, okay, uh, I need, we did a, in the fall, we wrote, we wrote our own play, uh, a collective. And she said, okay, well, uh, I need you to write a song, uh, a song called Death Cafe, and uh, you got 20 minutes. <laughs> right? And then, and I ended up doing that kind of stuff for the CBC. I ended up doing that kind of stuff. I do corporate gigs where I do that now still. Right. Um, but Lois was really, she, she, she felt like, okay, well, if this is a class about acting and making art and being an artist, like, let's go, let's just, let's just do that. <laughs> let's, let's just, uh, let's just make some art then I suppose. And she was great. So, and then I had the good fortune to be, once I went to university, uh, we had Dick Bueller, who was running, um, who was running the Reed Theater at Mon, and you know, a group of us, including Aidan Flynn, who now runs all the arts and culture centers, Katrina Bromley, who's now on Broadway, Steve O'Connell, who's now like, who's now a kind of a big shot actor guy, and a and and a bunch of other people. Um, we just we had keys to the theater, mm. and we just went in, and and once again, we they just let us do plays. Right. And we just did play after play after play after play after play. And mm. I was in, and out of high school, I was in Corian Wayne's Playhouse, which was like a, a comedy, uh, a comedy. We did bar shows. Right. Um, so actually I had my first sort of, so uh, my, my first uh, bar experience with Corian Wade's, which was Andrew Young Husband and Rick Mercer and Christine Taylor, Ash Billy. Um, and I had my first uh, uh, exposure there. So we were doing sketch comedy and then I would sing songs in between, sometimes comedy songs, sometimes not comedy songs. And out of that, I started doing these gigs. Um, just the first time I actually went to do a gig, a proper gig, was at the Cornerstone, which is now uh, the Cotton Club. Yep. You know, big old strip bar. Yep. Uh, and uh, again, at the time, there was a system in place where Wednesday to Sunday, there was, so uh, you would get hired Wednesday to Sunday as a band mm -hmm. and probably make more money than a band would currently make mm -hmm. per night. Yeah. Uh, because there was not as many entertainment options. Anyway, I got hired to do Buck of Bacardi Tuesday just one night at 15 years of age. My parents wrote me a note, and I went down, and I did Buck of Bacardi Tuesday. And uh, my first song uh, was Lola by The Kinks. And I sang, I played the little intro. Yeah. And I go, Men in a club down in Otoho where they drink champagne and it tastes just like cherry. Smash! There, uh, somebody threw a bottle at me uh, across the dance floor, smashed on the back wall. The bouncers came in. 
Uh, they pounded the crap out of the guy. They threw him down over the stairs. I left through the fire escape and didn't get paid. And I was like, this is the greatest night of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, anyway, that that was, that's not about acting. That was just how, no, that, that, was gonna, how, the, that was how the music career began. We're going to go back to more of those stories in a <laughs> yeah, second. That was pretty funny. And that um, yeah, was, it was awesome. Um, <laughs> so we had done all this stuff and, uh, and, and I had the good fortune, as I said, at, at Mon to be with all these people and Robert Chafe, uh, was a really good friend of mine. And, and we worked for Newfoundland Young People's Theater. We toured all over the province doing plays about how people, you know, shouldn't do drugs or, you know, should like science or whatever. Uh -huh. And, uh, we had to write these plays and that was great songwriting and acting experience because it's like i have no interest in this topic at all right this is a topic i have no interest in <laughs> uh but we have two weeks to write and rehearse a show that's going to do a six-week tour across the province right. um all right okay so we did a bunch of that stuff uh and we robert and i wrote a play that they did in the mine on bell island and that was the first time that alan hocko did a show and from then on, myself and Hako did a bunch of plays, and it always ended up that I was his buddy. So I was there to make him kind of look more attractive, was always my gag, and <laughs> is, in fact, the truth, I think. So I was there to be his drinking buddy, and, and he would look more attractive. And... We were in Ireland doing a film. I love being able to say that. That was awesome. We were in, I, when my kids were one and two, I went to Ireland for a month and my wife didn't even divorce me. Um, <laughs> and, and he came by my room and I kind of door and said, Hey, uh, do you think you'd like to be in a TV show where you're like uh, just a total scumbag? And I was like, yeah, man, that sounds great. He goes, Oh, okay. All right. And then like six months later, <laughs> he goes, Hey, uh, I, I wrote a wrote a TV show, <laughs> and uh, so he he wrote this character uh, uh, for me, and I don't think CBC Toronto were very thrilled about it um, because uh, they wanted to have somebody better looking. I think and and like and said so. Right? Really? That, that, yeah, I don't think that's insecurity. It's you know uh, when they you, mm, the TV thing was a real eye opener. You know, mm. and uh, and I got to say, I mean, I had way easier ride than women would get. And sometimes, man, the the um, I will say, like uh, it, I did not realize until I did that show how much pressure is on women to look fantastic all the time. Mm. It was crazy. So I. I was allowed to look kind of crappy, you know, right. um, sidekick eats fries, right? Like Hako eats a salad, sidekick eats fries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, did you find that that's interesting? Cause you had made a bunch of films before that. Mm -hmm. Did you not find that through the films? Did they feel more self-contained or something like uh, away from the, the, the studio exists or something? So you're in the actor bubble, right? So your job is to remember the 13 words or whatever that you have to say. And uh, it's this, everybody's job description is very, very, very specific. And I mean, you've done some film stuff and you know, right? It's like everybody's got a real specific job and there's no overlap because when there's overlap, stuff gets dropped, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So your job as an actor is to remember your 13 words. 
and they will insulate you from any kind of stress that they possibly can. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I was told pretty early on, like, please don't get your own cups of coffee. Like, I know you feel bad telling people to get you cups of coffee, but when you go to get your cup of coffee and we need you immediately and you're not where you're supposed to be, you're off trying to find coffee, then that creates a problem. And also, if you've got, especially when you're when people are getting paid, you know, the, the going rate, it's like, and there's 50 of them, there's like X thousand dollars a minute while they try and find you. Right, right, <laughs> totally. And, uh... And the thing to remember too is producers get paid last. Right. So the uh, so the folks in charge are, you know, there's there's a there's a really good reason why, you know. They, and I guess there must be like a really uh, unique thing when you're on a multi-season show compared to a movie where with a movie, uh, your the creative part, which is usually like a month to two months in your role as an actor of just shooting, mm -hmm. and then you're outside that, and then if if there's like bad news about the film or bad critical buzz or all that stuff, it won't matter how you feel about it because your job, like what you did will mm -hmm. already be set in stone and be done unless there's like a reshoot or something. Yeah. Uh, compared to a multi-season TV show where you will actually have a chance to see your work come out and then have a gap where people are reacting to it and hopefully yeah. positive, but maybe not always. And then you'll have to go back and reprise that role with that knowledge. Yeah. And I mean, we, we were pretty lucky in that. And, and I mean, Doyle is like, it was a very fun TV show, but we, sure. we had no illusions about the fact we were not making Breaking Bad or The Sopranos. This is a show about a guy who takes his shirt off and gets punched in the face a lot. And um, for and we were really lucky in that Newfoundlanders just went the way Newfoundlanders do. They just got behind it and pushed and they went absolutely apeshit for it. Totally. So it was, it was really like, there was so few downsides to that thing. Yeah. So few negative things like, and, and any, um, and any kind of unpleasantness or sniping or politics or anything, like I say, I was completely insulated from that. Right. Now, I didn't understand, there was stuff I didn't understand about how that industry works that took a lot of adjustment. Mm. I mean, I kind of thought that when I started on the show that that was going to be my job. And I kind of didn't realize, of course, how much downtime there is. And when you're not, when there's not a camera pointed at you, you're not getting paid. And I didn't, and I kind of didn't, and I knew that, but kind of didn't know that. Right. And so the first year or so was a really big period of adjustment where right. I just, where I figured it out. Um, but yeah, the, and, and again, it was another one of those things that it just makes you more like, it just made me more comfortable performing in general. Right. You know? Right. It was fine. But it was a little odd, like for, for a little while, for a very, very brief window when people were uh, kind of excited about that TV show. Um, stuff, you know, stuff would occasionally get weird, but generally in a fun way. Right. Yeah. Generally in a fun way. Yeah. Everybody like impromptu uh, auditions on Stevie's deck where people think that I'm going to cast them in something. And I'm like, listen, dude, uh, I cannot, you know, I, I'm having a hard enough time, like racking up a few episodes for myself here, man. I got no pull, zero pull. And that right. is, you know, you are an awesome dancer. That is great. I, I don't know what they're going to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> Some people would do like, anyway, it was kind of unusual. I think being, being Alan, who was the star of the show, I think, I think Alan had a kind of a, 
had a more celebrity type experience. I was, you know. Right. I did have a guy come up to me because I played a lawyer. I had a guy come up to me in the road and um, and he wanted me to phone his uh, soon-to-be ex-wife and say that I was Buddy's lawyer. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not going to do that. I'm really not a lawyer. <laughs> and yeah. he, was pretty, he was pretty upset about it. <laughs> he was pretty upset about it. How was your experience and how has it been, I guess, uh, if it's ongoing in any kind of way with the, you know, the music industry side of things? And by industry, I mean capital I, right? Like, I mean, you mm. had Drive, you were part of uh, Kelly Russell and the Planks, yep. your own solo career. How did all of that, you've talked a little bit about the actual nuts and bolts of like, you know, uh, playing in clubs and doing uh, touring that we haven't gotten into that in, in a ton of detail. Um what what's where did the industry of like the pre-internet age industry of the music industry weave with all that well the that's the i feel like i've had a really cool perspective on it because my uh my association with that industry goes back to the cassette tape you know right. what i mean right to the cassette tape as the main format <laughs> yeah um and uh you know obviously massive changes blah 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 uh but i was able to kind of experience the music industry as it was, you know, and, and, and it started to die because with drive at that point. So Nirvana occurred and it was pretty great because I had kind of a reputation before that for like having a weird voice and, uh, my songs were weird and, you know, a little bit like that. Mm -hmm. And then Nirvana occurs. Mm -hmm. And even more importantly, in a way, Pearl Jam occurs. Mm -hmm. And the fact that my voice was not like up there in Scorpions territory was suddenly an asset as opposed to not being an asset. Yeah. And so I went from being a fucking terrible singer to being a good singer overnight. And I didn't change at all. Right. Right. So Smells Like Teen Spirit comes out and Jeremy and all that stuff comes out. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I am more what they're thinking, right? right. Uh, and the bit that was irritating about that was, uh, you know, being I was 20 or whatever. And and I didn't enjoy the idea that uh, people are like, oh, so obviously, you know, you're very influenced by Nirvana. I'm like, no! Right, they're influenced by me. They're influenced by me. <laughs> well, it was more like, you know, yeah, we're influenced by the same people. Like, yeah, I listened to the Pixies and all that. And it and it was a little hard to swallow, uh, you know. It just got weird, like, to, to see the kind of people that would have been listening to Whitesnake suddenly running around in plaid Nirvana shirts and watching your band and stuff when it's like, I know for a fact you would have fucking punched me in the mouth for listening totally. to, you know? Fun fun fact, in my <laughs> former life for me, mm -hmm. I, I once interviewed for the Muse Memorial University's newspaper uh, backstage at the old stadium before uh, a whack of, like, screaming girls got their hands on them. The Moffats. Oh, my God. And I remember them very explicitly being like, yeah, man, Nirvana, our, our <laughs> biggest influence. And in my and in my head, I was like, no, you're not. No, they're not. <laughs> oh, yes, but uh, yes, Nirvana and all that. Oh. So it was, uh, it was funny because it was game-changing for people at large, and it was big for me. But musically speaking, it was like, oh, yeah. Okay. Right. It's like this band sounds like 
every band that I like right. already. Right. <laughs> so like the idea that the, that they were musically this big game changer always sort of pissed me off. Right. It's like, no, they're not. Right. It's like the, the quiet, the, you know, the, the loud, quiet, loud thing is like, okay, well, yes, the Pixies, right? No, not the Pixies, Nirvana. Very good. Okay, great. Um, and yeah, you've seen a couple of cycles there. Like yeah, you've, absolutely. Like that was probably, I assume, the first one in your life where you could truly kind of go like, okay, I'm musically aware and old enough to go. I've witnessed this via the Pixies of yeah. being like a, a young teen maybe. Yeah. And then being like, and that was still before your time, really. Yeah, yeah. And then, but then being able to draw the line and go like, yeah, yeah this band is doing that again. Yeah. And, uh, and for to have the, and, and I mean, I loved, I mean, for me, uh, out of all the Seattle stuff, it was Soundgarden that, that appealed to me the most, mm-hmm. um, because it brought in all the proggy shit that I enjoy totally. and the yelling, which is also fun. Uh, but, um, the problem that we had was that I am left-handed and blonde and it's a three piece band doing loud angsty music. So it, 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 it was funny there was an initial swell of, oh, hey, these guys are like Nirvana, and that was good. And then it was, oh, these guys are like, oh, these guys are just like Nirvana, mm. and that was bad. Mm. Um, and with the planks we had, uh, uh, it was pretty, it was interesting as well because we had a, a kind of a loud rock thing going on that was, that the folkies were uh, offended by, and that that was nice. But but there was a period, a very, very brief period with Drive where the music industry had not yet collapsed and there was still money there that we experienced that uh, uh, major label courtship thing, mm-hmm. which was hysterical, mm-hmm. just really funny. And especially funny when you realize that they're charging it to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So we got, you know, we get picked up in a limo and they get a bill for the limo. It's like, I, I we would have just taken a taxi. Yeah. Guys. It's like yeah. honest, honest to fuck buys, yeah. honest to God. Yeah. Uh, so there was a little bit of that that went on. And uh, I remember meeting a guy, a really, um, he was head of publishing at a, at a, at a big label. And he, uh, he'd been an A&R guy for a long time. And he was a lot older than us. Um, and he, he was terrific because he was honest. And uh, I remember having a conversation with him when they came down to St. John's to a bunch of labels showed up. And this was in the days when, you know, Sloan had kind of taken off and Hardship Post had kind of taken off and everybody was like, what the hell's going on in St. John's? And I spoke to this fella and very early on he said, we already have several of you. So, and I'm like, okay, well, all right, fair enough. Uh, okay. It's like, we have several of you and it yeah. was like, uh, it's like, I like you personally. I think you're probably one of the better versions of it, but we're already committed to a right. bunch. You're one of the better versions of you. Uh, yeah. 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 And, and he was, he was great like that, you know? Uh, and, uh, somebody else actually told me to lose 20 pounds and get my teeth capped, which was great unsolicited advice. I was wow. like, thank you. Yeah. Uh, but you know. That's that's the kind of stuff people say, I guess. Yeah. Uh, when I'm not sure it is. When but they're yeah. on, co- you know, yeah. Oh, when, yeah. when they're on cocaine, that's, sure, that's yeah. the kind of thing people say. Yeah. Um, but 
he uh, he made the observation. He said, ah, he said the music, and I I was asking him, you know, so what do you, what do you think of the music scene here? Mm-hmm. And he had seen all these bands, you know, kind of like loud rock bands. And he said, you know, the bands are really good, and I but I can't sell any of these. Mm. He's like because you guys don't understand uh, presentation. And his point was that because, as I said before, we lived in this sort of cooperative system and, and there's a real sense of, you know, nobody getting too big in themselves and no star culture at all, right? Because you can't set yourself apart here. The Newfoundland lobster thing that people, mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, is a real thing and I think was a bigger thing then even. And uh, he said, he said, all those bands in Halifax, now he had a, I will say this, this is not me editorializing. This was his personal opinion of Halifax. He was like, you know, he's like, nobody, obviously nobody owns a tuner. He said, the songs are garbage. <laughs> he's like, but you know what they got? They got outfits, they got videos, they got presentation. I can sell that. He said, so what you need to do is get yourself some outfits. And until that happens, nobody from here is doing shit. <laughs> Wow, fascinating. <laughs> it was great, actually. Yeah. It was great. And we spent many years uh, after that at music conferences with this guy. Uh, and he would, like, take us out to lunch and stuff because he he because we all knew the deal, which was that we were never getting signed. Right. But he had stuff on his expense account to prove that he was working at these conferences. And he didn't have to talk to these people that he didn't want to talk to. So. Right. Um, you could totally say his name here on mic. If you uh, nobody. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, he's still, he's still working. God yeah. love him. How did you feel about that? And how do you feel about it now? I, at the time, I was way more, obviously, I was way more incensed, you know, because yeah. I was, it was more. All but about I, the music, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I, but I guess now I understand that it can be all about the music. Yeah. Like you can, you can make it all about the music if you want to. And that is good. But if you would like to sell the music, then it has to be a product and product. That's how products get sold. So, you know, I don't think, I don't think we would have been successful trying to do it the other way anyway. Right. Like, I really don't think so. Um, But we, you know, but we toured at one point with a band uh, from BC, a band called Slowburn. And this is the kind of stuff that happened in the in the record company days, especially in the dying uh, days of it, where people are trying to cash in and 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 they kind of in desperation were throwing money at stuff, you know. Um, where we toured with a band, so we're completely independent. We're distributed through well, first we were distributed through Cargo out of Montreal, and then we were distributed by Kinetic Records out of Toronto, and that was Change of Heart and all those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, indie, indie, indie to the max, uh, well, not to the max, I guess, but close. And, uh, these guys were on uh, BMG Mm -hmm. and they, the record company had sunk a half a million dollars into them and the company had come to understand that they were never making their money back. And that nobody was buying these albums and uh, they needed to recoup the money. So these guys were slaves. They were, it was indentured servitude. It was $50 a night. Hmm. And they were on tour for the rest of their lives if they had to be. 
Wow. Um, you know, and eventually everybody had to declare bankruptcy and get out of it. And mm -hmm. that was it. Um, and so we saw firsthand, you know, it's like, you know, cause we got a, this thing opening for these guys. Um, and, uh, and, and the situation that they were, they were in was way worse than us. Mm -hmm. And they, they couldn't, at least we could make albums nobody bought that had songs that we liked and believed in on them. And they right. were, they were not in that situation. Mm -hmm. Hirings and firings and all kinds of crap. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. And there was a band from here actually, uh, I forget what they were called, in the late 80s. And they spent the advertising campaign on the, the advertising campaign videos and advertising. Uh, was quarter of a million dollars. That's like a quarter of a million, nineteen ninety dollars. Mm. Um, fuck, they're from uh, they're from the Pearl somewhere. Oh, somebody's gonna remember. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, they their lifelong friend is playing in the band, bass player, record company says kick them out. They do, right? They kick them out, right? They're half a million, you know, they're a quarter of a million bucks in hawk just on the just on the videos and stuff. And they they sold nothing. They were like. So a lot of people got hosed, and we saw that happen. Um, and so we were not really all that eager to get involved in that. No, of course. <laughs> Especially, yeah, we did. We got a we got a great limo ride and a great limo ride and dinner and all that, <laughs> that stuff you paid for. That we paid you for. could probably better afford that now just to get the ride. You don't even have to be in the band playing the show. Just Absolutely. go, just go get the limo. You know? One thing we did get to do uh, that we didn't get charged for was super it's been my only it was my most rock star moment uh and it's pretty sad to be my most rock star moment but uh but uh we got picked up as the planks because somebody was getting all hot and sweaty about the planks at one point i think this was just after the rankins had sold a hundred thousand copies of fairly well love out of their living room and everybody right. went holy shit <laughs> <laughs> you mean people like this crap? Um, <laughs> and so when we were playing with the Planks, which is like trad, um, and they loved the fact that we had like a 75-year-old uh, accordion player, right? They just couldn't get enough of that. They thought right. that was so cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so we were invited to play at a Juno's after party. So it was the tea party <laughs> and us. It was weird. Right. Very, very weird. Yeah. And so they picked us up in a limo and they drove us from Toronto to Hamilton. So right. we get a so we're riding in a limo, we're talking to the limo driver. We're like, well, this is cool, man. And he was he was a great guy because he could see that we were just like we'd never been in one of these cars before. And he's like, Oh, check it out, check out the you know, yeah, we pressed that button. Oh, it's cool, isn't it? So it was we had a good relationship with him, we had a good laugh, and we showed up and everybody's in their Juno attire, and and we look like a band that has been on the road for two months and smell like a band that's been on the road for two months. And like, I was wearing cut off jean shorts, if that's any indication. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, just not looking good. And <laughs> we showed up and the security guys were a little bit dubious, but I think they let us in cause they figured either we were nobody or we were so important that we didn't have to dress up. That's how dressing up works, isn't it? <laughs> If you're really famous, you don't dress up. You don't dress up. Yeah. So we ended up in this swanky ass party with um like Canadian music royalty, right? So it's which was funny because Canadian music royalty, particularly at the time, was pretty square, you know? Like yeah. um uh like, you know, Tom Cochran and uh 
Buffy St. Marie was cool. Buffy St. Marie and Tom Cochran and all these people. And Rita McNeil um, uh, asked me to get her more mashed potatoes, which was an interesting moment. So I got mashed potatoes for Rita McNeil, nice. which is great. Nice. And uh, so that was our big, you know, and then and then we then they, you know, we 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 played our we played our set to the uh, to the massively insanely drunk, not paying attention audience right and then they stuck us back in the limo we never heard from them again you know isn't it fascinating that the worst people to play for are oh, musicians at yeah. an industry event oh yeah literally the worst yeah you absolutely know? absolutely the worst and i mean i can't i can't talk i'm, I'm just as much of a dick oh well else. yeah you're in the everyone's in the back with their arms folded and <laughs> you're like this is the one time we're not playing but out we can you know, yeah. we can all we all want to socialize and have fun. And even if the band is fantastic, you still find shitty things to say about them because it's a laugh. You know. Yeah, it's a good time. And you're in with all the yeah. You're in the inner circle. You know. I love That's it. horrible, but it's great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Being horrible is great. Horribly great. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Well, tell me a bit more about touring. Our touring situation was the same as a lot of people's. It was fairly shitty. Um, <laughs> it was pretty shitty. And at the time, the. Uh, not at the time. Uh, geographically, things are still the same. Mm-hmm. Where you're on, in St. John's, which is you know you're pretty close to the most easterly point in North America, and you got to spend a thousand dollars to get anywhere else <laughs> to the next gig. <laughs> to yeah. the next gig, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and Newfoundland, like uh, rural Newfoundland, or even like Newfoundland beyond the overpass, was the, the, they didn't want to have anything to do with us. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we'd play in Gander and things would not go well and then whatever. So we just, we went straight to Halifax where we did have people who, who liked the band there. Um, but we didn't have a whole lot of contacts initially. Um, was this drive or the planks? This or? is drive. Yeah. Okay. yeah. The planks was a little bit better situation because we had Kelly Russell, whose father had been a bit of an institution and it was Newfoundland music. And so it was easier to get funding and fly in and do what the planks would do is festivals. Mm-hmm. So we're not like sleeping on people's couches. Right. Right. Like worst we ever had to do was university dorms and stuff. Right. But right. The planks was a different, was, was a different kind of thing. And to us, it seemed like pure luxury. Right. Right. It's like, right. Ooh, a bed of my own. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, with drive, we didn't have a whole lot in between Halifax and Toronto. We right. knew a lot of people in Toronto. Right. We knew a lot of people in Halifax. We had little pockets there and we could play to those guys and we knew that we could make money. And so we would take these kind of odd gigs and we ended up uh, in New Brunswick one night playing at this place. We pull up in this place in the middle of nowhere and um, a guy comes out, he's this sort of giant, huge man, um, who was, you know, not super sharp, uh, came out and he he insisted on unloading the van himself. He wouldn't let us help. Okay. And then we're setting up our stuff and Chris looks out the window and he comes back and says, uh, hey, I don't want to freak anybody out, but uh, look outside and tell me if there's not like 50 motorcycles there now. <laughs> We look outside and it's like, ah, it's a rock machine. It's a rock machine biker bar. Okay, cool. Excellent. Excellent. Sweet. Excellent. It's like, yeah. I really must. The people who recommended us for this gig should have mentioned that uh, they were bikers. And uh, and we were terrified because we were not that, you know? Right. How because, did it go? Um, 
it went really well. Uh, they wanted guitar solos mostly, so I played a lot of guitar solos. They wanted to hear Jimi Hendrix. Right. And I played, uh, I, I, you know, every song, 10-minute guitar solos, and they were fine. But they were they were fucking with us, too. Right. Because um, as terrifying as they were, like, and they are a criminal organization. <laughs> but, I mean, we were no threat to them, and they were kind of having, they were kind of having fun scaring the crap out of us right and uh so in the moment i thought oh we're all gonna die of course i don't think we were ever really in danger what they were mostly having fun doing was they would send a dozen flaming sambucas up to the stage for the three of us and we would have to drink them and then play and then and then after a while we're like we have to stretch this song out an extra 10 minutes so we don't have to drink another four flaming sambucas each because i'm gonna die if i do that right right and then if i if i puke and pass out then they're gonna kill us um, they were actually academics performing like a very specific <laughs> study on like how alcohol affects performance. They're like, all yeah. right, send it up each song and we'll watch how this evolves. Yeah. Terror, it turns out, is pretty good. Terror <laughs> it's, is it's terror a great is, motivator. Terror is a great motivator. So anyway, it was great. And Buddy is sort of like the main guy. It was really funny. Like, I don't understand how it works, but it's a bit of a Knights of the Round Table honor system shit that goes on. There's a lot of rankings. I didn't understand. Yeah, yeah. And there's a sort of the main guy who was terrifying looking um the sort of the the dude the highest ranking dude his mom was from buckins and was like oh thanks be to fuck uh and he said uh and when we said we were from newfoundland he said are you from where he said where are you from mm. and i said oh, i'm 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 from town he's like town and he looked all upset and i'm like oh no oh no but then chris batstone god love him he says he says i'm from grand falls windsor <laughs> and he's like ah okay excellent that's fine <laughs> then we were like that 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 he he, he was right on side then because right. we weren't all townies oh that's amazing yeah so it was kind of weird man uh so and but mostly like that was kind of fun and colorful and we ended up in a place um we had a very strange night um, with a band called the Belfast Cowboys, who we played with a lot in and around Ottawa. We had a really interesting night at a place called Wilno, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was to us as, you know, uh, young uh, stoner dudes. It was like, this is heaven, this place. Because it's, you know, there was... Uh, there was just a lot of uh, there was a lot of weed and uh, and and a real interesting community feel and we got invited back for this house party and 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 all that was lovely. But then uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and and I I had never heard anything about the town. And then a couple of years ago, I, I hear that there was a big there was like a a guy had gone and uh, and uh, killed a couple of people in the in the bar that we had played in oh weird and that's funny i mean it's very much later on of course but it was like but it it was very strange so that's the only two things that i know are the night that we had there which was very magical and this horrible thing that happened right yeah right yeah but i mean um but yeah mostly it's like i don't really have there's not a whole lot of fun anecdotes you know we did a lot of drives through the night we got um being from newfoundland was interesting uh we went through quebec at a time when there was a lot of problems uh to do with meach Mm. lake Mm -hmm. and some truckers in quebec uh, uh decided to fuck with us and uh it was stormy it was terrible uh snowing and all that 
but they uh, boxed us in. So one guy got in front of us, and one guy got behind us, and one oh, guy got God. to the side of us. And they would, and they started bumping the speed up. And so we spent, uh, we did a whole drive through. We did like basically an all night drive, uh, like that at about 130. <laughs> it was really, yeah. it was very unpleasant. Wow. It was pretty unpleasant, but I mean, mostly it was okay. Yeah. Um, and there was, and again, uh, because of the because of the years that I've been active, the, the there was this transition from um, the standard Newfie joke thing, where Newfoundland is a bunch of stupid inbred beer swill and hicks, to what it is now, which is uh, there's a lot more respect. Yeah. There. Yeah. Um, and I know in talking to my brother Dave, who's like 14 years, 15 years older than I am, like when he went to Toronto in the 70s, people were like dumping beer on his head and doing all kinds of stupid shit. Yeah. And you'd run into the occasional Newfie joke guy yeah. early on. Yeah. I um, mean, I, I have, obviously. Yeah, you know, of course. I wrote yeah. a song about it. Yeah, but you it's sure like, did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and, and those, you know, it's interesting. That was 2008 or nine, mm-hmm. And I, I will admit, even since then, which I think is later than what you're talking about, I've encountered less of it. So I think that there is like genuinely, uh, the trend is is upward in a good way, you know, yeah, like it's, yeah, which, for is, sure. which is nice. Yeah. Um, but it is slowly changing, you know, it's. You know. The, the worst people for the Newfie joke crap are the uh, expats. They're, 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 the, they're the problem. In my, Isn't that in strange? My yeah. That's, they're the problem in my opinion, because they're, because there's no easier way to get free drinks than to play into that. Right. Right. So we did a thing with the planks. We played at the uh, cultural center in Banff. And uh, when Great Big C did their, had their sort of start and and they, you know, because uh, the planks, we opened for them at the Phoenix in Toronto. Mm. And when we got there, we were really, uh, it was really interesting they had insisted, and I think Great Big C, this was standard in their contracts for years, it was like, no double dark and dirty specials, no screech-ins, no fishing nets, no fish on the poster, no any of these stereotypes, they just had it. it was oh, gone, wow, right? I didn't know that, that's cool. And uh, so we played with them at the Phoenix, and it was like, there was no, none of that. Right. Um. And uh, anyway, so we went, and we did not have that in our contracts, so we went out and we played at the spot in Banff and these folks, and I mean, they were nice people, man. They were not bad people, Yeah. but they were expats and they hadn't been home in about 30 years. And they right. all had this kind of accent that was not really the accent, but sure. that was like a, you know. Yeah. And uh, we finished playing and we felt really strongly about the Newfoundland music because we're playing Newfoundland fiddle and accordion tunes and we had a real, we were real serious about right. it, you know. This was not, you know, it's not Buddy Wass's name, although I think Buddy Wass's name is amazing. It was not that. And uh, without any permission being asked or anything, we finish the tune, and uh, and I look over, uh, I look over stage left, and a guy is walking up to Kelly's mic, and he's in the full regalia, and I'm like, oh, oh no. And he's got a paddle, and he's got the southwestern he's got the full oil skins on and all that crap and i'm like oh man give me a break and kelly was super pissed um because at the time we were really we were really fighting hard against that and uh kelly just left and buddy says to and it's about the size of the arts and culture center of st john's about a thousand people and and he goes uh 
No wonder everybody thinks Newfies are stupid. Who could take you seriously wearing this? And the audience, I could have kissed them all to their credit. Just like total silence, horrified silence, but and Buddy's up there sweating it out for a second. And then somebody in the back goes, get off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> but afterwards they had, there was this big thing. They had a reception afterwards and the reception was like people getting their picture taken with plastic lobsters and all kinds <sighs> of fucking bullshit. And it was, and it was arranged by ex, the Newfoundland expats and they truly meant no harm, no, but no. it was yeah. like, it was blood boiling. The only great thing about that evening was Frank Marr, who was playing accordion with us, who was 75 at least. Um, and uh, uh, Frank's, uh, you know, I believe what they uh, refer to as a character. Frank's an interesting dude. And um, he had these, he had all these tourists from Wyoming or something. And he was explaining to them when we went by, he was explaining to them, oh, yes, uh, I was raised in a little fishing village it was called the battery which is where he grew up and he said uh i was raised in a little fishing village oh and uh no i had cod's heads and screech you know mother would come into the igloo with you know with the cod's heads and then she'd boil them up in rum and you know and they were buying it they were totally totally buying it right right i'm coming to the igloo with the screech it was it was and that was that was pretty funny yeah um but again that it wasn't a huge issue most places we went. I mean, to be honest, that's, you know, you know, I was the, the I guess the next, when was this? What, what, like oh, 90s? this would have been like 99, probably. Right. Okay. So, I mean, like, I was probably touring a little under a decade after that. And, it, like, my my experience is always, like, I've definitely met those malicious people, mm-hmm. you know. Like, there's going to be a few of those, like, sure. where it's just, like, people being dicks and using your culture against you. <laughs> but, I, I mean, honestly, most of them are what you're describing. It's well-meaning people. It, it, it's often, I mean, the, the very last thing I would have experienced, I don't even remember, of just, like, that eye-rolly, yeah, yeah. But it it definitely the la- whatever that was within the last year <laughs> would have been just someone just just being like so yeah you know whatever the stereotype is just yeah. that thing that they're and there there are nice people who do nice things they just don't think before they speak and it's yeah. just you know they just don't know and I and I'm a lot less prone to get pissed off about that Johnny Harris was saying that like the newfie thing and I used to be way more pissed off about newfie and screechins and all that mm-hmm. um. But uh, but Johnny Harris said, you know, like you really do have to take intention into into the equation. Like, you know, if people don't mean to insult you, mm-hmm. then you know maybe don't be insulted. You yeah. can point out that it's not. You can point out that it's not really kosher, or you can give them the history. I found that if I gave people the history of it, it's like you know, that's a term that the the American military kind of used to denigrate Newfoundlanders like and people be horrified when they yeah. knew what it meant yeah but you know I always found when I did that with because uh, there's inevitable like ah oh, the Newfie accent and I've mm-hmm. always tried to do the like you know there's a lot of accents you know that's Damn the greatest right. thing about Newfoundland it's a linguist dream you could just go around <laughs> and I'm like and that's really how Canada looks I mean if you think about like like my dad's from the Annapolis Valley and there's a different uh, accent there than an hour away in Halifax and Definitely. and I feel but I feel like by the time I finish talking their eyes are usually glazed over they're like yeah I'm not going to bring this up again just out of boredom I don't want <laughs> right. to I don't want to hear another linguistics lecture Ian oh my god absolutely not. why did we start this <laughs> yeah 
They gave up being stereotypical out of attrition. They were just like, no, never mind. This is not worth the effort. My grandfather was an, was an Irishman, and the thing that he hated the most about, uh, well, he didn't hate the most, but uh, he came to Newfoundland a few times, and the thing that he disliked the most was that nobody gave him any preferential treatment um, as a tourist or as an Irishman, like he thought he could get some mileage out of that. And he never could, because everybody just thought he was from Bay Bulls. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm. Um, uh, the Simple Machines? Yeah. Is that an upcoming finished it record? It is. Wow. I have, uh, I recorded, uh, I learned basically, I learned a lot about recording. I built myself a little room. I, I like, you know, I've always been pretty hands-on, but I, uh, but, I, and I was going to make another record with Don and Adam and Don is never around, and Adam was busy all the time. And I'm like, well, I'll just get started. And so I got started, and then I'm like, well, I need some, need some bass, I guess. And then I put bass on it, and then I'm like, well, I need drums, I suppose. And then I get some, you know, and and I uh, and I through various means get <laughs> drums on there, playing some, looping some, correct. And, and again, back to the point about I don't care how it gets there; it's just there. Totally. And. Um, and so logic drummer man have we we had this chat right or garage band drummer or some of those um, like addictive drums too is oh what, yeah is what okay. i'm using there's incredible stuff out there oh now yeah for and that. it's fantastic yeah. and you know and thinking up the parts is fun and yeah. and and i enjoy that and then certain times you know uh, like playing playing the playing electronic drums getting the midi and correcting it and like you know it's like i play you know, three or four bars in a row, and I feel like I'm Neil Peart or something, right? But uh, you know, at an eighth of the speed. Right. Um. So, yeah, and I'm the difficulty that I'm having right now is uh, I have stuff more or less finished, and I'm just sitting there listening to it, going, and there's nobody to tell me to stop now. Right. I need somebody to tell me to stop. I totally get that. Where I'm just like. And now I'm, you know, and you talk yourself out of it. It's like, is this a song? This isn't even a song. Yeah. This is just noises. Totally. And I'm like, oh, God, Sean, you've done it again. Um, People laughed at the, at my production workshop uh, um, when I talked about self-producing. And Scott Hammond was there because he works at the school. And Scott mixes a lot of the records that I do. And, uh, and I just did the Christmas record here and mixed it myself at Scott's, but Scott would pop in. And I, I use the phrase, like, it's important to have those people around you. Like, for instance, I will go to Scott and go, Scott, is this stupid? And people laughed when I said that phrase, like, almost just sort of like, ha ha, like, you're phrasing it, like, over the top. I'm like, no, no, I would get to the place where I would show him, a, like, a finished song, basically, and just be like, can you listen to this and tell me this is stupid? And and of course people would balk at like, of course it's not stupid. I'm like, no, but my brain is at such a place. I'm like, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna start there so that I, anything above that will be good because I don't know anymore. I've gotten so not you know subjective about it. Yeah, and where I'm doing the mixing of it as well, I'm mixing it, and I mean I'm I'm no mixer for sure. But I'm mixing it anyway. Like that's just a uh, for me now. It's it's just like this is this is the idea. Mm. The idea is that I do this. Right. When it popped disaster, I'm like I'm gonna write a song a day, teach the band, then we're gonna play it. Sure. And so for this was like I'm gonna play everything myself. I'm gonna mix it all myself. Yeah, yeah. So the difficulty with mixing then is like it's like oh, it's two point five k, half a dB. 
Right. Hmm. Let's half a DB up. Yeah. Half a DB down. Yeah. Huh. What happens if I compress it four to one instead of three to one? Let's see. And it just turns into this. And we're in the digital age of plugins where you could be like, I just got this new compressor. I wonder how different this compressor will be on the vocal than this other compressor on the vocal. Answer? Not much different. No. <laughs> but giantly to you. Oh, just yeah. Just no one else who ever hears the song or has any opinion on it. Yeah, I had to uh, I had to give up uh, getting uh, third-party plugins, man. Yeah. Uh, and I have way too many now. Um, and I have a bunch of the soft tube stuff, and I love that. Oh, and they're I kinda, so good, man. And I kind of made a decision. I'm like, all right. What I'll do is I'll use these soft tube, and I actually uh, uninstalled a bunch of other stuff that I had. <laughs> you had to uninstall. I had to uninstall stuff because I'm like, if if I have the option to continue dicking around with this stuff, I'm just going to be here forever. I know. And there's a and so yes, I have a collection of songs, and a and I kind of ran into this thing where I'm going, these all sound very samey. And that was bothering me. But I kind of realize that they sound samey because I wrote them, you know? Right. So And you recorded and mixed them. Like, yeah. it's a... Yeah. But, you know, there, there's the flip side of that is uh, is cohesion, yeah. you know? Potentially. I mean, yeah. potentially not. But it's just like that's the nature of... It's a project that's different than any project you've made before as a result of that, which is... I think like intrinsically a good thing that it's different. Whether in the end you're like, I love this more than anything else I've ever done, we won't know till time has passed. But yeah. like I think personally, at least, you know, applying it to my own arc is like trying out stuff. Even with the Christmas record we did last year, I was like, I made the choice to be like, I'm gonna do a lot of this in the box yeah. and try out stuff. And I, I started using the phrase to Nancy, I'm going to try something that's going to get us kicked out of music. That was my go back to phrase of yeah. just being like, what if I put this weird, like warbly synth on good King Wenceslas? Is that going to destroy people's opinion of me and this 800 year old <laughs> folk song? But I'm like, why not? It's fun. And, and it sounds good King Wenceslas will survive. He will. He's yeah. been you know, 800 years and yeah. he's going to be around 800 more, you know? So I, I feel like my my biggest problem now is is I just, is just to, just to put it out. How are you going to do it? Are you going to singles? Uh, <laughs> I, I would love, love, love to press some vinyl. I think that would be super fun. Totally. To press some vinyl. One thing, uh, um, but I think, you know, well, just uh, to putting it out digitally otherwise is fine. You know, mm-hmm. I'll press a few CDs for people who like them. Some people still do. Yeah, that's true. Um, and and they're inexpensive. Uh, they're inexpensive to do. But I um, uh, I approached uh, Jesse Meyer um, to, and a, uh, well, I approached Jesse Meyer and I said, I, I don't exactly want album art. What I would like is I'd like you for the li- I'd like you to listen to these songs and give me a font. And a few colors, and a couple of images, like you're the design per. Like I have no visual imagination at all, zero. So, uh, so like listen to this, and give me a look for it. Mm. Don't think about record cover. Don't think about anything like that, mm-hmm. because in most cases that's not how it's going to work. It's mm-hmm. just like I just want to. I just want to have a, a kind of a, a visual vocabulary to go along with the music and mm-hmm. see how that is. Right. But yeah, I've totally lost perspective. I got 
I got absolutely nothing. And I could have put this stuff out six months ago and should have. Um, and should have. Right. So. Uh, Maybe going back to it now, like that was something I ran into with the Christmas record where I'm like, we're obviously on a hard deadline here because it's seasonal. Yeah. But I do think that if you can lay something aside and then go back to it, that's been my experience that I'm like, oh, I'm more like a more like a normal human being listening to this now, like for the first time, as opposed to listening yeah. and being like, see, can't you tell the EQ curve problem I'm hearing? And the person next to you is like, you need you need to talk to somebody. About this. <laughs> that's right. Because I don't like... If I listen to uh, if I listen to Papa's got a brand new bag, I don't. His vocal is distorting. Do I give a shit though? Exactly. No, I do not. Exactly. You know, I'm listening to the White Album. It's like oh, I don't know about that level on that guitar. <laughs> like no, no, I'm absolutely not thinking that. That's right. So you know, you do the best. You know, you do the best job you can do, but it's all a moment in time, one way or the other. Yeah, and I think that's something that I've definitely gotten over is that it doesn't have to be the definitive version, you know? Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine was working with, uh, he was playing with uh, the punters, I think, in the recording studio. Pat Moran had a great had a great one. It's like, and this is Chris Batstone, and Chris is very, uh, Chris got real interesting, eclectic uh, musical taste, some pretty out there stuff and he has a lot of production ideas and he's been to he went to recording school and he's got all these ideas all the time and chris is like well we could you know i could do it again i'm like i think i should do it again and we'll do this and pat's like we're not making dark side of the moon man like are you done so i often think that i've heard uh there's a film one lately that i go back to for the same thing it's clint eastwood who notoriously like shoots one to two takes of the movies he's directing right Mm -hmm. he's very just that same you know, in the film world as, as say like Neil Young is in the music world, just as few takes as possible. And there was apparently some film where they shot a take and Clint was like, let's move on. And the, the DP was like, Clint, can we just do another one? Uh, the camera was actually slightly out of focus there. And he said, they know what I look like by now. <laughs> That's <pretty> funny. <laughs> Um, thanks Sean thanks for coming in man oh man this was super duper fun that was super duper fun I love Sean every time we chat it's always entertaining and that's one of the secret criteria I've had for this podcast series everyone you're hearing in season one uh, is someone that I have spoken to and had great conversations with in person and had probably uttered the phrase or thought it in my mind, God, I just wish there was a mic present while we were having this great chat. And this podcast is the answer to that. So I hope you're liking it so far. If you are, please like and subscribe on the podcast service of your choice to help uh, with this podcast being discovered by more people and spread the word to those you think would be interested. Next week, we've got Agnes Walsh, the poet on the podcast. She is excellent to talk to. I hope you'll tune in. See you then.